Welcome to The Art Kid Speaks, a podcast by Radar, where we explore the role of the artist in our quickly changing world and talk with different guests about their experiences of life and work during times of isolation and the many unknowns. I'm Annie, your host for this show, and today I talk with Matthew Charles, a mystic, poet and abolitionist whose work primarily explores the labyrinth of the construct of race in America. He has recently released a book called You Cannot Burn the Sun, and in this podcast we look in-depth at some of the themes and also hear one of the poems from the book. I really encourage you to tune into this conversation. Matthew is the kind of artist who speaks his truth strongly and challenges structures in society that need to be dismantled. So expect to be challenged and please go and share this once you listen to it. Hi, my name is Matthew. I'm 25 and I'm an art kid. Matthew, thank you so much for coming onto this podcast. My pleasure being here. I wonder if you could first kind of start off by introducing yourself, where you're based at the moment, your background generally. Yeah. So yeah, I'm 25. Uh, Right now I live in Vancouver, British Columbia. I just moved here last month. I was in the Yukon in Canada, in Whitehorse. I moved there in October, but before that I was in Madison, Wisconsin. So I've been, I've been moving around a lot in the last few months, lived a sort of nomadic life. I am a poet. Uh, since I was 13, I've actually been trying to be a rapper. But then when I was 17, for three years, I actually lost my voice. I couldn't speak. It was excruciating pain. It was terrible. And in that time, I was also conveniently feeling like the form of rap was constricting. And so I was exploring with different writing forms and I happened upon poetry. I didn't notice spoken word and poetry like that was a thing. I grew up in a small town in rural Oregon that actually used to be a sundown town. And so I didn't really get education about poetry. I, in fact, didn't even graduate high school. So in my mind, I'm in a way pioneering a new art form because I'm like, I just know rap isn't, I feel like I can't be vulnerable. I feel like in rap, I have to have a a facade. And so I'm like, I, I want to put the mask down in the art that I make. So I'm exploring writing that feels more journal-esque, but is also artful. And in that time, yeah, coming upon poetry. And, and eventually, uh, I end up in Madison, Wisconsin, and a team wants me to come out to the National Poetry Slam in Chicago, which ends up being the last NPS ever that that organization shuts down. But it was like this historic NPS because slam poetry was started in Chicago like 30 years ago. And so the last national slam poetry competition happens in Chicago. I didn't even know about slam poetry until that summer when I was at an open mic. And the open mic host was like, hey man, I'm taking a team. You're really dope. You want to join the team? <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't even know what slam is, man. He was like, research it. You're good already. <laughs> so I researched it. I was like, I'm not good already. Uh, I don't do what these people are doing. So I had to then add new tools to the toolbox because slam is a different style. It's a more invocative, provocative, invocative style of crowd engagement and competition. Slam is a competition. It's a sport. And so your, your pen got to be a sharp in a different way. And so going to NPS, I had this crazy experience there where I felt like I was one of the best poets on my team, whether that's true or not, who knows. But because of that, I felt like I had a responsibility to carry the team. So the first night we show up and I had prepared this poem, but I also felt like my team wouldn't really be competitive. I felt like if I was on a competitive team, I could be competitive. I felt like my team wasn't competitive. Because of that, I didn't really plan to come and show out. Like I planned to like take in everything, but I didn't really plan to like go in, you know, like I had, I had written at that point, my magnum opus, it was called Affirmation Two: the dominance of non-belonging. This piece, I cried when I written it. It was like so many revelations about myself, but like it, I hadn't refined it into competition format. I hadn't refined it to that level, but I had some other pieces that I was like, oh, these are good. Like I can get by with these. So the first night comes up, I feel like I had, so I'm a spiritual person. I feel like I had this connection with the divine. It's like the divine tells me, yo, switch the piece, actually add these two lines that you can't even think about to the piece before you go up. I go up, do my piece. I go over time. You're supposed to go three minutes. I went over by like 
30 seconds. You get deducted time. You get projected points for time. It was terrible. I got the lowest score on my team. And the whole whole round that evening was terrible because I wasn't prepared because I felt like I had this divine premonition of switch things up. And I did it. But then I felt really ashamed. I was like, damn, like now I look like I'm the nigga who ain't come prepared. Like I'm the, like, I look like a scrub. Like, why am I? Like, I look like, <laughs> and so I'm, I, I am an artist, but I'm also <laughs> prideful. I'm like, I know I, I, want, pe- I want people to know I'm good. <laughs> yeah. The next night, then I bring out my magnum opus. Like, I actually, because that night, yeah, the competition wraps up and the artists, everybody, all the artists are supposed to hang out and stuff. But I feel so ashamed. I go back to the hotel room. The MPS, they got us like done up in like the Hilton Hotel, five star shit. Like we we done up nice. But I'm like, I go back there in shame. Like everybody else is partying. I go back to my room. I'm like, no, I'm work mode. Like I'm refining this piece. Like I got to be A1 for tomorrow because tomorrow I got to let niggas know that I'm actually better. I didn't originally come to do that. But now I got to let you know that like I'm a threat. I got to let you know that. I, I didn't come to do that, but now I got to go into that mode. And so I refined this piece and I come and there's 30 people performing every night and I scored top three. I get like a score of like 9.7 you get out of 10. And so I got like a 9.7. And at the end of that night, like the slam master, that's the person who's hosting it. He's kind of like running down through like people he liked. He like picks like a few people who he likes and he picks me first. He's like, yo, Matthew, my piece is about belonging. He's like, you belong here. Everybody say, Matthew, you belong here. Everybody chants, you belong here. This is crazy. It was like this baptism moment of just like, like, yeah, like y'all should have known. Like y'all thought I was a scrub? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm, I really am that nigga. Like, I do this. <laughs> our team still, our team bombed. Like, we did not win at all. We didn't uh-huh. get the semis or nothing. Like, that was the end of the road for us, like, for uh-huh. sure. But for me, I felt, you know, it's like basketball, like a postseason. It was like a first-round exit. But uh-huh. it was like, for me, I felt like I had a good individual showing. And so it was, like, good for me. So for me, as an artist, yeah, that, that's me. I'm, I'm like, I, I, I am competitive. Like, I, I want people to know I'm good. But also at the same time, I, it's because I want to be impactful. Like, I'm not just trying to be good in a vacuum or whatever. Like, I actually want to touch people's hearts and stuff. That's what I really pride myself. I'm, I'm really, conf- my style is very confessional and personal. It excavates, like, myself and just puts myself on display in the museum. And so to that level, it actually comes at great cost to me because it treats myself like a museum. And I learn a lot about myself in my creative process because there's an inherent process of discovery. You know, it's like I am the archaeologist who's discovering, oh, there was this thing. But then I'm also the museum who puts it on display, who's getting paid for, oh, that thing that the archaeologist found. But then I'm also that thing that was found. So it's this relationship. I have different relationships with myself and art has changed my relationship with myself and I'm happy about that. So yeah, you asked me who I am. I'm a person who is an artist and art has profoundly changed my relationship with myself. I like that. I like that image of, or that picture of being the archaeologist and the museum, the one who discovers and the one who like puts things on show. So Yeah, today, specifically, I wanted to talk about a book that you released last summer. I guess it's coming up to a year ago that you started it, which is crazy. It's a book that everyone should go and buy and read, because I think it is a really profound story, narrative of the events of last year, starting from was it the 25th of May last year when George Floyd was murdered and it documents up until the 12th of June. So it's kind of this, yeah, the story of your, your experience and kind of a process or your, your processing through all of that. Yeah. Um, and creating this body of work that is, it's so powerful and so captivating. So first couple of times that I read it, I just read it all the way through, just straight through, because it it really does, like, each poem leads into the next. It does hold you captive, and it, like, reading one makes you want to follow the story through to find out what your experience was. Um, but also, it's not, it's not just your experience. It's like, yeah, it's talking about the wider social, political climate and, yeah, the experiences of many black Americans and yeah I think it's just like incredible and really necessary for people to read. I wonder if you could start off talking about the title 
and where that kind of came from. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you for the compliments for the praise. This this book, I, I really tried to make it something that for a reader would feel addictive to read through. So stylistically, the poems... I tried to make them not feel finished in a way. Like there's a way in which the whole book is one poem. Like you don't know, if you just read one poem, you're drastically, like there is a drastic awareness that of the insufficiency of just one poem in this book. Like you're so aware of it doesn't paint the whole context. And so you have to read the whole context to like get it. And so like there's this way in which I put different things in different poems that are plays on different poems so that like you can't get the whole thing till you get the whole thing. And even if you get the whole thing, maybe you don't get the whole thing. And so it just really pleases me actually to hear that that's your experience of just like that the first times you're engaging with the books, the book, you're, you're having to go through it the whole time because that's like literally exactly what I was trying to do. So like, thank you. That means a lot to hear. Um, but yeah, uh, the title comes like, so I, I wrote, so originally the book, what it came from was like, it starts, it functions as, as a kind of documentary of my life and starting on the date of May 25th, 2020 and going to June 12th, 2020. And with, with George Floyd, well, so before that, Ahmaud Arbery being killed and uh, in the summer where uh, the United States becoming re-aware of Breonna Taylor's death because she wasn't killed in the summer, but we were made re-aware of that in the summer. And so tensions were really high. And uh, I was really involved in the protest. I actually lived on the street right next to the main street in the, in the city of Madison, Wisconsin, where a lot of these protests were happening. And so it was just a very, like the, the riot cops were there, tear gas. It was just like, it's like living in the war zone. Like when I went home, I didn't get to go to the suburbs away from it all. I went to sleep in it for weeks at a time, you know? But so I was trying to figure out how can I contribute because I feel like I can do more than just come to a protest. But at the same time, I recognize that I'm not local. Like, I'm not from Madison. Like, I've only, like, I've been out in Madison since I was 20. I'm 25 now. But I'd been there on and off. So I, I knew a couple people here and there. And, and some people know of me. Even as an artist, like, there's a kind of respect that people have for me. But I'm still not, like, I can't get 10,000. Like, there was a protest in my city that the churches, the African-American Council of Churches, they got together, like, 10,000 people for a protest. I can't do that. So I'm like, what, what can I do? Because I can do more than just attend the protest. So I was like, okay, as an artist, I can use my platform, I can use art. So what I know is that there's a lot of misrepresentation in the media right now happening about what's, what's going on actually in the streets, boosting the ground. And so then that's informing a lot of people. That I, a lot, I was working for this organization, a lot of white people, a lot of white people aren't proximate to black people. And I was really honestly worried about what they might be thinking about what's happening because I'm in the, in the middle of this. So for me, it was like, how can I not just serve them, but it's also the whole world and everything is functioning. I'm like, let me be a reporter as an artist. That's what I can do. My role in the revolution is to be a reporter. So I started an Instagram series called Black. It was lowercase b, capital L-A-C-K, Black. Uh, and it was about how I feel like in America, Black people have been forced into having such lack and, and how last summer was revealing that in different ways. So that was a series that I was doing. And it was getting really high engagement more than the stuff I'd done previously. So I was just doing that for uh, like two weeks, I think. In, in the summer. And then one day I, I wrote 20 poems in one sitting. Cause, cause for me also, cause I'm so involved in everything that's happening last summer in the protests and the activism, I'm needing a way to process too. So the poems that I'm using as reporting, first and foremost, it's catharsis for me. Cause I'm like, yo, what did I just see today? <laughs> so first and foremost, that's what it comes from is catharsis. And then it becomes reporting. But then I write 20 in one day and I'm like, okay, this ain't a series on Instagram. Because I was posting on Instagram. And so I was like, this ain't a series on Instagram anymore. It's a book because now I have, like I already had 10, 15. And then I just wrote 20 in one sitting. So I got 35. I'm like, I'm not going to do a 35-week Instagram series. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so in that, that moment really transitioned me into having a book. But I didn't have a title. Originally, then my title was, was Black still. And so I had like workshopped that to a couple people and... For Instagram series, it was all right. But for a book, like it kind of lacked 
that kind of oomph. And so one of the poems that I wrote, like the, the words, You Cannot Burn the Sun, that's the title of my book, those words were in it. That poem is, uh, let me look, yeah, it's, it's uh, page 43. So that's, that was a really pivotal day for me this summer. I was working for this organization and this summer I had decided to speak up against the racism that I've been noticed. I've been working for them for a number of years and I'd spoken up a different way over, over the last number of years about racism. But in the summer I spoke up in a lot more organized, direct way. And in the summer, because I, I had actually been living in Germany last year. And then because of COVID, I moved back to the States. And so I have nowhere to go in Wisconsin because my, my mama's situation, I can only stay out there for two weeks. And so I was staying in this organization's housing. And so their response was to evict me from their housing for speaking out against racism. And that's really fucking sucky because this is a group that claims to be Christians. Like I, I was doing work that, you know, they, they, they claim to be, to, to be missionaries. And, and that's, that's, that's what that is. So on one of these days where there, one of these confrontations with them, I was with some friends of mine and it had been a really bad encounter with this organization. And my friend just randomly is just like, you want to get a tattoo? And I was like, uh, okay. And I only had one tattoo is for this friend of mine from a childhood who, who died in a, in a car crash. And that I had I'd given like five years of thought. I'd wanted it for like five years and I'd been trying to find different artists for it. And so my friend this day just asked me randomly, I hadn't thought of a second tattoo. I want to get tattoos. Like, I'm like, yeah, I want one. I don't know it. So I'm like trying to think like, okay, but I do want something meaningful. And, and, and so it ends up being this, my, my favorite poet is Hafiz. And that's one of the people who this book is dedicated to, Hafiz and George Floyd. Hafiz is this uh, 14th century Sufi mystic uh, master poet from Shiraz and in the Middle East. And uh, the poem, I, one of the lines in it, I say, uh, uh, it says, want to get a tattoo? My friend asks as we leave the dumpster fire that was the meeting. Fire at temperatures between 2,400 and 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit burns the color white, but you cannot burn the sun. Yes, I say. I'll get my favorite Hafiz poem because today I was the sun that did not say you owe me. Is my light bright enough yet? And that poem is a callback to the tattoo. So I don't, in the book, I don't tell you what that poem is. Like that's homework you got to do yourself, but it's, it's tatted on me right here. And that poem references the sun, actually. So the title of the book is a reference to a Hafiz poem. And I don't tell you about that poem in the book. What I was thinking of when I um, was looking at the title, on the blurb or on the back page of the book, you talk about the reader being the sun. So I was wondering if that was like related to the title. Yeah, it is. So with this book, what I tried to do first and foremost was mm-hmm. catharsis, right, was was be honest about this is who I am in these moments. Between May 25th and June 12th, this is who I am. But in that, you know, as, as a writer, one of the things you learn is that the more specific you get, the more universal it actually is, you know. So the more I specifically talk about myself, the more I'm actually talking about all of humanity, right? And so that's something I really try to incorporate into all of my writing is a very deeply personal thing so that it's distinctly very much about me. And me, I've had a kind of life that is very actually marginal as a transracial adoptee from a place that was a sundown town uh, and, all, and having a twin with a lot of mental health disorders and, 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 and a lot of different things in this, a very mar- kind of marginal experience that informs that. And so this book is like this uh, experiment, an artistic experiment of like, you know, can people have the empathy to say, well, what if I was that person? Mm. Right. So I, I put myself in explain this book to a level. I don't, you know, one, one of the critiques of this book that I had was that once you read it, you don't want really to come to know about me, Matthew Charles, so much. You, you, you come to know definitely about the summer and what I did in the summer. But you don't leave being like, oh, I know Matthew. Matthew feels like a friend. It doesn't feel like that. And honestly, it wasn't supposed to feel like that. You know, two, two poems in it are really subtle, but they're actually really big and they're, they're hubris poems. And they speckle the book and they're about hubris. And so the, the book is examining what it looks like to be uh, overemphasized versions of ourselves, unbalanced versions of ourselves. And so it's like, if you can read this, mm-hmm. not just as like, oh, that's that other thing, 
but it's, oh, that's myself. Because when it comes to anti-racism work, you know, the problem in America for the last 400 years isn't just racism. It's that white people think race is a black people problem. Race is a white people problem that black people are forced to deal with. But it needs to be dealt with by white people, right? So there's this way, like, black people can read this and they're going to identify it because, you know, niggas play niggas all the time in the country. So you're going to read this book and you're like, yeah, for sure, I feel that. But white people, this is going to feel something different. You know, there's moments when I say, yo, capitalism is bad. You know, as an American, to say something like that feels very other. And so to, to challenge the reader to say, hey, don't let any of this be other than you, let all of it find all of itself inside of you. That is a saying of open your heart fully to this project. Let not only you consume it, but let it consume you. Yeah. Become yeah. one with it, like a vine and branches, that there's a relationship, you know? And so that's what that invitation is, is this is invitation for everybody to say, this problem is all of us. Mm-hmm. We have to be aware of how we all have to urgently respond. Yeah. I really feel that with this book because you address whiteness and you address white people as well. So I felt like through reading this, you were directly talking to me and it did kind of feel like uncomfortable at times. I've been in Baltimore since October and I'm just so much more aware of my whiteness than I was mm-hmm. before. And I think that's that's the same for a lot of white people and it should be that should be the case if people aren't aware of their whiteness then there's a problem but i think yeah you do that in a way that it's like you're challenging but you're doing it from a place of caring and you feel that in the book as well it's not through a place of bitterness of course there's like anger because that's right (laughs) and important anger and you talk about this book being a letter of your radicalization as well. And I was just wondering if you could tell us a bit about what that looks like now, almost a year on from writing it and how that's kind of affected or changed the course of your life maybe, or how you practice your art or view the role of an artist. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think You know, last summer, one of the things that became really aware, like the way we name things, the problems, the stories we tell, how we tell stories, the meanings we draw from, all of that is actually everything and nothing. And so I'll tell you an example. I'm from Oregon State. And when I was around high school age, there was this college girl who went to like Oregon State University. And she was like, hey, we were talking about race, me and this white girl. And she, she says, there's a statistic and it's like more, there's, there's like, like 30% of people in prison are black people. Yet black people in America are 12% of the American population. Those are the numbers. Just off those numbers, we don't actually know inherently what that could mean. We just know that that's, that is the truth. But then this young woman told a story about, she says, my professor told me, that the reason for this, the meaning to draw from this is that it's because black people are more criminal race. Because you're not 30% of the population of America, but you're 30% of the population of prison. So you're, what I see is there's disproportionate black people in prison. So white people must be innocent, you must be criminal, right? And so it's, it's very subtle, but it's the stories we tell. And so last summer, because of COVID, because of race mm-hmm. was a summer of stories. And my book is a story. Well, the way that the summer radicalized me was an awareness of the power of stories because you and me as a white person and a black person, we're no different other than fundamentally what informs us differently is the stories we listen to and the stories we believe. Both, because I, you and me, listen to different stories, but we also believe different stories than we listen to, right? So maybe we, we listen to a hundred of the same stories, or maybe we only believe 10 of the same stories, right? What forms us, what it forms everybody is the stories that are told. And then especially the stories that are believed. White Americans and Black Americans have profoundly different stories that shape their ide- ideas of identity. And a lot of the stories that prop up white identity are myths, honestly. And a lot of stories that black people tell about ourselves are lies because white people have 
lie to us about ourselves. And so one of the things that I've seen is crucial about my work is telling Black people that we're beautiful because to say that Black is beautiful actually is revolt because white has systematically, scientifically tried to say that we're less than human, we're ugly, inferior, unintelligent. And so to say anything other is a gospel. And so I'm learning what gospel looks like in America is being anti-white, not anti-white as in saying kill white people, but yeah. like white is a social construct. And it's a social construct insofar as like, not all white people today would have been white people in 1600. Italians weren't white people originally, right? So you had to eventually, you had to fight to become white. And then once you became white in the social club of whiteness, then you didn't have to worry about all the other things. But everybody knows it was better to be white than anything else since everybody tried to be white. But some people, could never be white. Black people, natives could never be white. Mexicans could never be white. So it was like, you're in a caste system, right? So the way that someone radicalized me is, you know, I got to tell stories and I got to tell them honestly, and I got to tell them in a way that reveals how we lie to ourselves about the stories we tell ourselves. And so even, you know, there's a subtle way of the storytelling of the book is you cannot burn a sun. Like I said, there's this critique that like, you don't really know me as much, but part of that is this awareness, like, because the city that I was in is a primarily white city. And so I was thinking I have a primarily white audience. And so one of the interplays I had is I chose not to say too much personally about myself because there's this poem in the book. It's called Kizzy's House. And mm-hmm. Kizzy is this black woman who me and her real life friends are with and, and as real life experiences. And there was this refuge of, in, in the summer of just being there because I was just being assaulted by so much other stuff. And so there's this way in which the book is talking in a way to a white audience because it doesn't tell you the fullness of myself. There's a lot more than to what was written, but it only tells you so much that it's just like, well, here's what it's like being in the streets and at work and what it doesn't really entrust you with my soul because there's a way in which the book is telling you explicitly and implicitly, I don't think I trust you though. Like I want to, but like, all these things keep happening to the point that like, I feel like I can't trust you. So like, I'm going to tell you where I can go, where I can trust to be, to tell them, but I won't tell you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. So there's, there's a lot of like very subtle things that are playing. Like the book doesn't tell you everything. and It doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you. Like there's sometimes things tell you read the fine print. This book doesn't tell you there's fine print. So you ain't even know. That's really interesting. Cause it does, it does feel like that in Kizzy's house when you're describing kind of going to this place where you feel like these kind of home comforts. But yeah, you're not let into the conversations there. Or we're not yeah. let in as the reader to those conversations yeah. or to mm-hmm. like the healing that's happening in that space maybe. Yeah, because it's like as a black person, black readers will know when they read that, they're like, oh, not I know exactly what it's like when you've been so assaulted by whiteness that you need people who just get it and you don't have mm-hmm. to explain things to. Like when you just need that, Every black person knows exactly what that is. So that poem, my poems work on different levels and people don't even always know the level because what last summer did, it stratified people. We became different than we thought we were. So this poem is exploring different kinds of identities and different layers of ways of being than people knew that we even had yet. You know, for me, I feel like there's a way in which this poem is next level because for me, I feel like there's a future in which America is going to become increasingly activist-centered because people are becoming increasingly dissident for good and wrong reasons, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there's going to be a lot more of that, those things. And so this kind of protest literature, exploring identities and things like that, I think this book is really significant in that canon, which for young readers, I think, is really unexplored. It's been explored historically by people who've done this before. But for young people... You know, um, there's a way in which I think this is unprecedented. And so it was, it felt really like, I know the kind of care that I put into this. And I also, there's a way in which I'll be honest, I feel like it's been underappreciated and that's okay. But like, I'm really excited that I, I love, like when we got on the call and you tell me how you engage with the book, I love that. Cause I'm like, that's what it was made for. And I'm excited for people to be, you know, cause I'm an independent artist. I don't have anything behind me and all that stuff. So like when it just brings me joy, when people are engaging with it in the exact ways that I was hoping they'd engage with it. And yeah. it's just like, I love it. Yeah. Even if it's not being as appreciated as you kind of hoped for yet, I feel like there's still time for that. Like, Exactly. It's the kind of thing that maybe years down the line, suddenly people will read it and they'll be like, wow, this this tells the story of that time. Exactly. 
and and that's even what you were saying about how did the summer radicalize me is like you know because I'm in Canada right now one of the ways in which the summer affected me and then you know because well, the Chauvin trial has been on. I've been in Canada. I watched the Chauvin trial nine of the 14 days on, on YouTube, streaming live here in Canada. And I felt like I was not where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ways in which the summer radicalized me, I think, is it made me very aware. Because, you know, I used to be kind of ambivalent about my country. I've traveled a lot, a lot of different countries. And I love traveling. And I got to a place last year where I was like, yeah, fuck America. Like, I'm out of here. But, you know, where I'm at right now, I was like, dang, like, actually, I love, I don't like America, but I love it. It is my home and I want to fight for better. And it's the kind of fight where for me, growing up in a very rural place that was very influenced by the South, education is a lot of times a lie. And so when they talk about uh, the history of black Americans, you know, they talk about slavery, like Martin Luther King Jr. And that's it. But when they talk about Martin Luther King Jr. and talk about civil rights, they talk about how courageous black people were, but they don't say, you know, but black people have to be courageous because white people created a system that was so nefarious and so death dealing that black people had to organize on a national level yeah they had to it wasn't an option this they had to do and then they teach it as if they won like martin luther king won no 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 no. he he lost actually all of the civil rights leaders from the 60s in modern modernity right now they're saying we're in the exact same time as them like the fight ain't over they in the 60s we got some concessions but we didn't get civil rights we ain't get what we're fighting for so like really the urgency ain't nothing different and so for me that's what last summer did for me is let me know like yo like in a real 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 way Uh it ain't no different and it's so not different but that's exactly why Chauvin can challenge for a mistrial because he says that juror was at an event that had uh, was associated with Martin Luther King Jr. Because he thinks that anybody who has the ideals of Martin Luther King Jr. is unfit to, to judge him. And that is how America has always felt. America has always felt that anybody with the ideals of somebody like a Martin Luther King Jr., a Christian who was convicted, who said that money is not God, who said that people and community should be our priority, who said that in this country, militarism and racism has eroded our moral consciousness. Mm-hmm. America has never saw fit to be judged by a person like that. And so when Chauvin says it's a mistrial because that guy has the ideas of King, well, we got to understand what's happening because it's happened before. And last time it happened, King was killed for it because America was like, we really don't want to be judged by a nigga like that, right? And so we're exactly right there. And that's, that's what the summer did to me, is let me know and nothing changed. So I need to reorient my whole life because I can't casually fight for this stuff anymore. I have to dedicate my whole life to it. Wow. And what does that look like? Having had a year since that point and this time to kind of meditate on all of this, have you thought about what that looks like going forward? There are some ways for sure that I have thought. I mean, for me, I think like being an artist is a big part of, it. And so as an artist, it's a storyteller. And so like last year, I was privileged of being able to be a lead actor in a film called Trace the Line. I can't speak too much about it, but that challenged my ideas of who I am creatively because I've always imagined, you know, I said earlier, I started as a rapper and then I became a poet. But so I've always imagined myself as a writer. But then doing that reminds me, oh, actually, I did a lot of acting when I was in high school and middle school. The stage acting is different than film acting, but it let me know, oh, actually I've done different things than just this. And then doing that reminded me, actually, when I was a kid, I tried to write a book. Granted, I stopped when I got two pages in because I didn't, I couldn't figure out how to make this the go first. <laughs> I came to an insurpassable problem for a 12 year old, <laughs> but, but it let me know, oh, I've been trying to tell stories my whole life. Yeah. It's not just that I'm a rapper or that I'm a poet or that I'm an actor. It's that I'm a storyteller. So last summer, let me know the kinds of stories, like the kinds of reasons why I want to tell stories, what kind of goals I might want to have in telling stories, which is, which is about bringing about dignity to people, which is to bring about awareness of like the wholeness of humanity that everybody holds, no matter what body as a human they are, you know, they, they deserve honor and dignity and to be treated with um, love and mercy. In America, in the American social project, 
there are certain ways then that you have to tell stories to illustrate that, right? And so like for me, a storyteller that I'm really influenced by is a, is a, is a man named Yeshua. And he would tell parables and he would tell parables that were to an agricultural society. So we tell parables about mustard seeds and farmers and stuff. And he would do that. I tell parables too. And they're parables about people getting called naked. Yeah. I wonder if you could share one of those now. One from the book. Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is called Beware the Prayer of the Oppressed. Um, it's a poem that I wrote. So like in, in Madison, Wisconsin, when everything popped off last summer with the protests, you know, definitely sometimes they get a little violent and uh, there was like looting in my city. And uh, there was one street in particular, State Street, a lot of businesses there and a lot of looting that happened. And so then as a result, the broken uh, businesses, they put up boards and stuff all up on their street. This is a, one of the prime commerce streets in, in all of Madison. And so they put up boards and kind of like shut all the business down. But then artists came in and they did graffiti and painted art and murals all up on these boards. So this whole street, which is right up to the Capitol building, because Madison is the capital of Wisconsin. This whole street then, which at first looked destroyed because of the, the protests, the riots, the looting, everything, which, you know, I ain't even say people are wrong for doing that. You know what? George Floyd shouldn't have happened. So I ain't, I ain't going to say the looting shouldn't have happened because the fact is George Floyd shouldn't have happened. And so this street gets transformed from a wasteland all of a sudden to this kind of art hub, all these artists. And, but it's a demographic. It's not usually there. You know, Madison is a really white city, especially this downtown area where this is. And so it's people of color who do all this art. You know, so it's totally different and different religions. And it's just like, it's so inside of Madison that like, in a way, Madison, like white Madison didn't know. Madison is called this, like a tale of two cities. You know, it's, it's, it's very segregated and, and, and white people don't know that. People of color all do. And, and so there's a way in which particularly this poem then, like it's showing that because a, a Muslim woman that did this art and I wrote a poem about it, I can read it. The piece. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, called Beware the Prayer of the Oppressed. One piece of art quotes the Prophet Muhammad Beware the prayer of the oppressed, for it ascends to God like a flare. Flare. Bright. Red like the spilled blood of black bodies. God, do you see us in danger and ignore us? For centuries, black Americans have been flares, shining red. Whites look at us with blind eyes. They don't even know what they don't know. How do I love those who ignore me? Worse, how do I love those who have only just started to care? Like, like valuing black bodies is a trend. If Instagram didn't exist, you wouldn't have heard of the revolution. That's powerful. Hearing you read it again after having read it myself, it's just making me think of or it's just interesting hearing a prayer being likened to a flare because there is such a link between politics and religion in America. Mm -hmm. It feels like religion is used for political agenda a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. So the Bible and like prayer and things like that is all kind of linked to this political agenda. Mm -hmm. And whether it's genuine or not, it's kind of tainted by that. But it being used in this poem or in that phrase, it's like prayer is described as something so much more powerful and profound than just like some words said from a pulpit or spoken by a president or like talked about by politicians. It's actually so much more raw and yes. aggressive in a way. And like, it can be violent and yes. it can be like, yeah. you know, this fiery powerful thing and it's like it shouldn't have ever been maybe limited yeah. to those kind of whitewashed places or those yeah. like pristine chapels yes. and things yes yeah you know i i love what you're saying I, I love i love every single bit of it you know because this poem at the end of the day with the poem is supposed to was undermined in america we have this idea of things that are good and right so the poem immediately lets you know we're going to be talking from a Muslim perspective. Whatever we're orienting us right for the rest of the poem, I'm letting you know immediately we're orienting from a perspective that is in conventional, historical American worldview sense, not American. So not of us. So first and foremost, if you're going to engage with this poem, you have to engage with something that is not of yourself. And so you're talking about 
the, the intersection of politics and religion. And it's interesting because, you know, politics, the Greek root of that word is polis, and that means the structure of society. And so for me, I actually feel that religion should be very about the structure of society. Religion should be very involved in politics because honestly, let, think about it like this. If the religion didn't have to do with structuring society at all, then the easy dismissal of that would be, well, your religion is all just in here. It has nothing to do with anything around us. It'd be the easiest dismissal. So we need it to ground us insofar as, you know what, this is how you can relate to people. This is how you can relate. These are different kinds of relations, right? So I think, I think there's a, a way in which no matter what humanity needs to know how to structure our society, whether that's through religion or not, I think if religion doesn't also address structuring of society, that religion isn't, is, is useless. I think it doesn't have to, but I think it's useless if it doesn't. But just because it does address it doesn't mean it's inherently good. So to say all those things. So America imagines that Islam is inherently bad. And so the poem basically says, if we're going to be faithful, what does it look like to be so faithful in a different way than we've ever been? You know, that's what it, it, it's saying. Everything that you said, Annie, and it's saying we bastardize what it means to be divine so much. What if we have to stop taking cues from ourselves? Other people seem to have better compasses than us. People that we say are bad seem to have better compasses than us. Mm. And so what does that say about us? And what does that say about them? And what does that say about God? Because, you know, this piece quotes the Quran. Beware the prayer of the oppressed for it ascends to God like a flip. I got chills when I read that. Beware? Niggas don't say beware anymore. That's like 1700s language, you know? Like, that's like, I got the sword on me. I'm about to, like, touch you. <laughs> so, so it just immediately just gets you immediately just like, yo, there's some real danger. Watch out. And why is there danger? It's prayers? Whose prayers? The oppressed prayers? Because it ascends to God like a flare. And then I had this vision of like car flares, right? Just these bright, like when, when you broke down side of the road, you like that thing that everybody see for a long. I'm just like, dang, can God see that? And then I had a real moment with myself and I was like, dang, all right, if it ascends to God like a flare, God, where you at though? Like we've been praying. Like what you yeah. talking about? Like, I don't know if I believe you, Quran, because like niggas been dying, we've been flares, right? So the poem is like, is, is looking at so many different things in that of just like, all right, let's be honest. But if we're going to be honest, let's be honest. Like, I feel alone out here, God. Like, it feel like, like, I know I'm supposed to be faithful and I want to tell America to be faithful. But also, God, you said that you'd see it. But if you see that, you're just ignoring it. But then also, if you're ignoring it, how am I supposed to love white people who are only just now starting to see it? Mm -hmm. Because that's a real thing. Last summer was a flare. The thing that I compare last summer to, uh, I hope this isn't... Um, insensitive is to Hurricane Katrina because in the South, a lot of places were affected by Hurricane Katrina, but not everywhere was New Orleans, you know? So it's honestly fair to say in some places, just they had more water in their garden. So for those people, they could say, yeah, we were hit by Hurricane Katrina. That's a fair assessment of it. But other people, the way that they were affected by Hurricane Katrina is they were on a roof for five days waiting for FEMA to come in the chopper and fight them out, right? And so Everybody was affected, but it was different ways. And so last summer was that too, of like, okay, sure, like you were affected and I was affected. But when I say I was affected, I mean I was stranded for five days. When you say you was affected, you mean your garden got a little more water. Or there's a spectrum, right? That's what I mean, though. It's like, yeah. there's all this. And so this poem, I just love it because it's just exploring like the spectrum of just like, people aren't, we try to label people and say, you're this, just this. That's all you are. You can't grow. You can't get worse. Maybe you can get worse, but you can get worse. You can't get any better from that. Like, it's only declining game, especially with social media and everything. You know, like, we just like stagnant ideas of who people are. And so this poem is just like, okay, the divine being isn't stagnant because the divine being said they do something, they cared, and it seems like they're not caring. So what is that? But then I'm not stagnant because there are these things happening. And white people aren't stagnant. So it's, it's putting everything into question in a very profound, disorienting way if you really sit with it. And I said a lot, and that's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it does exactly that. It's kind of like throwing out all these questions. It's like flares going off. They're kind of unpredictable, and you can't control where they go and what they light up necessarily. I think this poem is kind of doing that. It's throwing up all these questions and thoughts and critiques of people and, and things. And yeah, kind of just like, asking questioning and digging and searching yeah 
And then at the end of the day, the poem is still titled Beware the Prey of the Oppressed. So it still is like the author still low-key feels that way, though. It's like still is like hoping, though. It's like, yo, but but God, if you're out there, like, I do hope you're hearing my prayers. And yeah. if you're hearing my prayers, there's some people who need to beware. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. And it does, like, tie it back to one of the earlier poems. Yeah. Come, yeah. Which is about, I think a girl like or someone going to a protest and just like instagramming it and being there for the likes and the the image of being seen at this protest yeah man and that's you know that poem is fun too because i didn't write the poem like i wrote the poem in a way of which i'd have to tell the story about it because like she actually came like bruh she came like she had like the coordinated blue outfit and her dog like she looked really good like so this night specifically Mm-hmm. Everybody came to clash with the cops. The government was like, yo, don't stay out past 11. There's a curfew. So to meet at 11 at the Capitol is like, yeah. you're that's trying to start. Like, that's what that was. Awesome. And so we all out there, all blacked up and like ready for like whatever's about to come. And she comes out with, with a dog, a pampered looking dog, like holding it with like the, these blue booty shorts and this blue tank top. At 11, I was just like, girl, like, what are you doing here? Like, what do you think this is? Like, this this is not the thing that you'd come to like that. Like, you're what you're disrespecting us. You're disrespecting yourself. You're disrespecting our ancestors. And, and all, that, all that is happening in this poem that basically is saying, you know, some people come to be, quote, unquote, liked. Others to be, quote, unquote, followed. But who has come to lead? Like, are people really coming to lead our world into new directions or are we just coming because other people are coming so we just come in because that's the thing to do today is to do the thing that is a really good question because there are so many people who are just coming to these kind of things to to be followers or to to be seen and to be yeah seen as being current or politically yeah. correct and things like that the word is performative there is a lot yeah. of people that activism is performative they're doing it because they feel like there's a kind of social pressure that whatever kind of person that these people want to be, do this kind of thing. So you know what? I'm going to post this black square on Instagram. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. But you know what? They didn't know anything about George Floyd before this happened. They didn't know about the countless people who've been killed and named and hashtagged for years and decades and generations. And, you know, I had to be Wells wrote a book about the lynchings that happens that names a lot of people that happened in the 1800s. Like, the, the idea of naming people, we know George Floyd's name, that, that isn't new. Like, that's, that, that's not new. That's been what America has always been. And white people, as always, are just late to it, you know? Yeah. So it's a poem that is saying, you know, white people are coming in late, Black people been showing up to do this work. But at the end of the day, we have to be collaborators in creating a new world order. Because, you know, for me, I'm a person who I've traveled a lot. Like I said, I've been to multiple countries in Africa. I've been to the Caribbean. I've been to Germany. I've been to Cyprus. I'm in Canada now. I'm from the States. You know, I've been around and I've seen a lot of interact with a lot of different people, a lot of different world view, ask a lot of different people, a lot of different kinds of questions. And what I've seen and learned is America is so distinctly different from the rest of the world. And one of the reasons is because of race. The racial construct in America is fundamentally different from anywhere else in the world. An example is when I go to Germany, I'm an American first. I am black, but I'm an American first. Mm-hmm. Grant, like when I, when I go to Germany, the real experience is they ush, they rushed me through check-in because they thought I was a rapper. And I, I let them think that. I was like, yeah, just help me. Whatever. You can find me on SoundCloud. <laughs> I told him that. I said, whatever. Like, you go, sometimes racism works in your way. You're like, fuck your shit. <laughs> so, like, Germany, it's like you're an American and you're a black American. America is like you're black, maybe you're an American. Right? So, yeah. that's the way in which race has affected things so piercingly in America is it affects belonging. If you are a certain race, you don't belong in these walls. That's why the border with Canada is pretty open, but the border with Mexico is not. That is the exclusive reason. And so this book, these stories, it's about belonging. It's, um, you know, I've, I've got more work coming that is more vulnerable, but like this is like an entry point of just like, there's certain, you know, I, I think so longevity-wise, there's certain tidbits and, and there's baits that I fished in this book that won't make sense that the next one comes out or the third one comes out because I actually am playing a long game. And so my canon of artwork is about belonging in the American project. And that 
race is such a distinct part of that. And You Cannot Burn the Sun is, for me, as Matthew Charles, my entry point into exploring that. But a lot of my future workers are going to explore belonging because I'm a transracially adopted Black man from a place that was a sundown town, and I have a twin brother. And so belonging is a very sacred soul journey for me as a being. You know, having a twin, you know, we have similar names. People still mistakenly call me his name, even though they didn't know I have a twin. So it's like, am I individual? You know, that's a, a wrestling in my work. It's like, who, am the I, who is the I? But then who is the we? My brother and I as transracially adopted together. Who is the we? Who is the we? But then also, who as transracially adopted with my mother and my father being white people, who is the we that's more than just the we that looks like me? Because there is that we. There is a we of just like, you know, me and my brother got to know what we need because sometimes white people aren't going to know what we need. So there is that kind of we that is needed. But there's also the kind of we that's a coalition where it's interracial, interfaith. So what does that we look like? So my work explores these different layers and levels of belonging. And that is a fundamentally what You Cannot Burn the Sun does is it explores a or multiple layers of belonging through the storied construct of my experiences last summer in an autobiographical format. The ones that you're working on at the moment, do you have a kind of time frame of when they're going to be released? It depends. Uh, I got some things... So I I did a conference recently. And so part of that was I had to like, they had to have the stuff exclusively for a little bit. So they had that. So they just got that to me. It's now not exclusive. Like I can put that stuff out. So there's a couple of poems. I'm going to drop some spoken word, like long form, three, four minute pieces. I'll be dropping the next few weeks. But then insofar as like book projects, like ain't no date on that. I'm hoping that like, like ideally for me as a, as a businessman, I, you know, I self-published You Cannot Burn the Sun, but mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot of different things behind the scenes to where I'm hoping that there can be a second and third and fourth edition of You Cannot Burn the Sun. And so I'm hoping to get a bigger run of the first book before I have to put out the second book. Mm-hmm. Like the second book is close-ish to being ready to being put out, but I don't want to put it out soon. Like the the kinds of stories and conversations that can and will come from my first book I feel like America as a country isn't past the need for those conversations yet. So I I want to figure out how to not selfishly, but selflessly capitalize more on the first book before I have to worry about putting out a second book project. Um, But yeah, like this film that I talked about earlier, that's going to be, we were submitting at the film festivals, you know, that's market. So we're going to see what happens with that. Who knows what happens, but that might come out. There's a lot of my poems in that. So when it comes to a project that is specifically Matthew Charles, I don't know. But I'm collaborating. I'm working on a lot of different collaborations, but those would come out sooner than a book specifically. Cool. And where can people find all of this stuff? Like if they wanted to purchase the book or find yep. you? Yep. So, you know, I got an Instagram. You can find some of my poetry there. I keep it pretty bare. But from Instagram, you can follow the links and you can buy my book on my, my, my shop, Shopify. It's about 15 US dollars plus shipping. And I don't actually have much left of this run. I think I got like 30, 40 books. So uh, get yours before it's gone. <laughs> I don't know when the next one's going to be. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matthew. This has been such a good conversation. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Really appreciated the conversation. Good to, to just begin into these things. And uh, yeah. Talk again. Hope to you know see you sometime as well. Thank you so much for listening. I encourage you to find and follow Matthew on social media so you can keep up to date with his work. Links will be in the show notes below. Also, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast. We have new episodes being released each week and now have three different shows on this channel. So do check out the other episodes. Okay, that's all for today. Peace and love to you, my friends, and talk to you soon.